special bulletin. I welcome back for the next part of our, I'm calling it a broadcast interruption since we normally talk about movies, but we are diving into episode two of True Detective Night Country. I'm joined again by Matthew. Thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, glad you could join us. And I have a, it's a special guest for me. I'm super excited <laughs> she's joining us. Um, but Ivy Tholen is here. So Ivy, if you want to take a second. Um, I'm Ivy Tholen and I wrote the novels Taste Like Candy and Mall Rats. Both of them are slashers. Uh, one's a slasher set in a carnival. The other one is a slasher set in a mall in the 1990s. And um, I'm a massive horror fan. And um, this season of True Detective is horror. So I'm all in. That is for sure. So <laughs> I, I just kind of reached out to Ivy. I, she was posting something I don't remember, but I commented that I hope there were more books coming because I, I read Taste Like Candy. I loved it. Mallrats is on my list. And she was awesome. And she was like, yeah, I want to I talk about True Detective. And so here she is. Super excited <laughs> to have you. I'm All excited right. to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So without further ado, let's dive in. I'm going to break it down scene by scene. If I miss something, if you have something, feel free to interrupt me. Let's. I just want to talk about this. All right. We open on the scene of the frozen bodies that we closed episode one with. Uh, Danvers is there. That is, if you're just hopping in again, that's Jodie Foster's character, Liz Danvers. She's the police chief for the town of Ennis. Um, she's joined by young Peter Pryor, and they're discovering that the bodies frozen in the ice were stripped naked. Their eyes were burnt out, and it appears that their eardrums were ruptured, along with some other random strange injuries. One part really bothered me about this scene, and I... I'm still not sure why it happened, but while they're kind of chiseling out, they're not chiseling because they don't want to damage the tissue. Uh, they're removing the bodies from the frozen ice. These police officers were acting super reckless. And it was kind of frustrating to me. The one just charges in with a chainsaw and starts going at it. And she freaks out on him, thankfully. But why would he do that? You hadn't seen him with a chainsaw before. He just comes charging in, not following directions. It was one moment that I was a little bit like, I, I don't get that. And then there's another one posing, taking selfies with the, it's going to be referred to as the corpsicle throughout the episode. <laughs> he's, he's taking selfies with this corpsicle. And I just like, I, I didn't feel like that was a natural reaction. I don't know. I, I agree. It's it's also funny that the other uh, the other detective there was saying that they're just blowing off steam. That phrase got me as well. I was like, mm, are they? Yeah, right. It was it, it's a weird scene, but we take I, I might get why it was setting up this other part in just a second. But right after that, it cuts for a second. And I wrote down, I was like, where is Navarro during this? Because she arrived at the scene with him. And then it cuts to Rose and Navarro. Rose was the lady who found the bodies. She was led by her ghostly husband, Travis. Um, Rose and Navarro standing there. They're just kind of staring off into the distance. And Navarro tells Rose that this is tied to Annie's case. And this stood out to me. And Rose goes, oh, you're screwed. So if you remember from episode one, 
Navarro had this suspicion that the cases were linked. The missing tongue was Annie's. There's a six-year difference in these cases. Um, but we don't really know a whole lot about that previous case. And just that little line from Rose telling Navarro she's screwed, and I was like, I feel like that's such a deeper meaning than like, oh, you're screwed that it's connected. Definitely. I, like, I, I definitely agree with that for sure. Okay. I felt like there was some weight to that. And I'm curious to see where that goes. The first time I heard it, I kind of wondered, because the first episode made me think that, oh, she's obsessed with this old case, right? Obviously, they, they planted that in there. Yeah. I kind of wonder if she knows that Navarro is about to become like completely just sunken into like obsessive again. And I, if it's going to get even bigger, I kind of, like, that was kind of the impression that I got the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not so sure, but I f- almost felt like mentally she's about to lose her mind. It's just almost, that could almost be the parallel of Rust's character in season one, when he just kind of shelled himself off and was fully invested in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think about it that way. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> do do we know if Travis is actually Rose's husband? Like, was that confirmed? The so I, they were in a relationship clearly, but it does not say that he was. I was husband. wondering that myself. So I do have a note about who Travis was in here. So she says she's screwed, and then she just walks away. Navarro looks down, looking down in the snow. She notices frozen nicely folded clothes we assume it's the scientists who are nearby uh it then cuts back to the removal of the corpses from the ice this scene this scene got me um it was really good it was really good Mm -hmm. but one of the officers accidentally breaks an arm off of the frozen corpse sickle and gets yelled at but then there's a beautiful, I, the practical effect of the frozen corpsicle, it moves its head and moans Ooh. in pain. And they realize that one of these frozen scientists is still alive. And that scene just sent chills down my spine. And I was like, oh, this is good. This is good. I watch it, a lot of horror, me off guard. horrifying things I've seen in a long time. It was good. <laughs> started moaning. That that was so. It was one of those things where you wish you had thought of it. It was yes. so good. You wish you had thought of it. It's very mm-hmm. rare you get to see like something new on television, mm-hmm. and that was one of those moments. It it, it caught me off guard. It, like actually kind of scared me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes, it sent chills down my spine. I was also just in appreciation of not. Like it wasn't CGI. It was a very practical effect. It looked very Mm -hmm. real. Yeah, it's kind of distorted and frozen in ice. Um, I was reading that she was really inspired by mummies and old paintings when she designed it. And that's very clear in the design. But it is super cool practical effect. It's so good. We find out that the the survivor is taken to the hospital. And there's some amputations being involved. Danvers is on the phone. She wants to talk to him. And I'm like, the guy was just frozen and had his arm snapped off. Give him a chance to thaw before you're interrogating him. But she's walking through the hallways on this phone call. And then she hangs up, walks inside to this classroom. And this bothered me because I was a teacher for two and a half years. And I've never seen anybody just walk in and dismiss a class. But it Mm -hmm. happens all the time in movies and on TV. So Danvers walks in, dismisses this class to talk to Bryce, who is a science teacher. 
not much happens in that scene. They It kind of cuts real quick from that. We come back to it. But we cut to Rosa Navarro again, who, assuming after the bodies are in the ice, Rose visits Navarro. And this is one of those, like, quiet talking scenes that the younger me would have hated. <laughs> I... I would have had no patience for it. I would have like, okay, I'm going to go get a drink. But the older me is sitting here listening to what is being said. And this scene is so good. We find out that Travis was dying of leukemia and walked into the snow of his own accord. So she just kind of talks. They had this final romantic day, this day together. She describes their events and then he just walked off into the snow. So the cancer didn't take him he went out his way and it's kind of a heartbreaking moment. It's beautiful and it's sad and a little, in a way it's a little disturbing, uh, especially when you realize that that definitely was his ghost the episode before. And I just laughed that she's telling this story as she rolls a joint. I thought that was kind <laughs> of funny. Uh, but we, we then learned that Navarro was the one who found Travis so I did not catch that on first watch. Second watch, Navarro was the one who found Travis. So I watched interesting. Twice and didn't catch that. Yes. Same. That's a so good correlation right there. That is how Rose and Navarro know each other and are a little bit more connected. And I was like, ah, that's cool. It's just a quick line of Navarro says something about, and that's how I found him. And I was like, ah. Also, I am not sure if it is confirmed, but there makes a ton of sense that Travis's last name is Cole. Yes. <laughs> is that yes. confirmed? Uh, yeah, I think he says it. Okay. Um, or, I'm sorry. She, she says it about him. Yeah, it was Travis Cole. And I was thinking, like, I really wonder if this is kind of like just a little Easter egg from season one because it was Russ Cole in season one. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up, like, going back to Alaska and then eventually comes back to Louisiana. And we end up finding something else in this episode as well. So I won't jump the gun or anything. But I kind of wonder if he was like continuously sort of chasing the case. And maybe this is like his dad or something. Because they reference his dad quite a few times in season one. So I yes, don't know. that is the belief that Travis is Russ's dad. He kind of looks about the same age, though. So <laughs> I don't know how that exactly works. But Do we he know how long ago he died? That's true. I didn't think about that. We well long enough for Navarro to have found yeah. him. Yeah, which she's in her thirties, so it could have been ten years ago. But that is the belief that it is Rust Cole's father. So that blew my mind a little bit. This is when I we. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that they're, oh no. they're planting too much. That it's it's not a coincidence. Yes, I don't I think it's Easter egg. Totally agree. And that's we had that discussion about the spiral, which we're going to get more into in this episode. I have so many feelings about that. stupid. <laughs> so we're still with Rose and Navarro and Rose says something about people in Ennis see the dead all the time. So Navarro kind of brings up this conversation about like, how did you see him? And she just casually like, oh, he's the first. But people have seen the dead in Ennis for a long time. And. She says this line that I, I loved it so much, I wrote it down. The world is getting old, and Ennis is where the fabric of all things is coming apart at the seams. I wrote that down, too. <laughs> it's an yeah. amazing line, and she just delivers it so calmly. 
-hmm. And this is one of the moments um, I talked about how I think this season is going to lean on a heavy paranormal story. And this is another one of those moments that I'm just like, man, that's leaning to a paranormal resolution to this. Mm -hmm. But then she follows it up with another chilling line. That is, the thing about the dead is that some come to visit because they miss you. Some tell you something you need to hear. And some want to take you with them. You need to know the difference. Just another fantastic line. Mm Mm-hmm. And this whole, this whole yeah. like section is like a perfect little ghost story, even even just by itself outside of the rest of the bigger story. It's just a nice little ghost story. Every time they start talking about seeing the dead and, oh, you know that it just starts getting it's so creepy and so good. Yeah, it's almost like everybody in the town is like kind of used to it. Oh, yeah. Yes. Numb it's to very the weird. Yes. And it's like you said, it's a perfect little ghost story. And it's just another one of those examples of furthering the history of this little town that we're seeing Mm -hmm. that I praised episode one because I felt like we're not just this city doesn't just exist for the sake of the story. I felt like there was a history to the city coming into it. The city has a past and it makes it feel so much more real, even though it's a fictional city. I talked a little bit about how it is based on a real town, but they're doing such a good job of creating this rich environment for this story to take place in. Mm -hmm. We cut back to the teacher named Bryce again. Danvers is asking what was going on at the research center. And Bryce apparently knows this is one of those tropes that I let slide. Um, The high school science teacher knows all about what the professional science experts living on a (laughs) place, you know, you know, I let it slide for sake of storytelling. I don't believe in real life that a high school science teacher (laughs) would know exactly what's going on. But the he states that the scientists were super reserved and kind of kept to themselves but they were trying to sequence the DNA of an extinct microorganism that could stop cellular deterioration and find a cure for many disease. Um, This is also the scene where we find out that he and Danvers have a little bit of a little bit of a past. So I think this is like the third person that we're finding out that Danvers has had a history with. Mm -hmm. We're getting to learn a little bit more about Danvers through other people. The teacher says something interesting here about, he thought their research was futile. He said it would never work in a million years. And I just thought that was a little interesting tidbit. Again, I don't think they're on the same level there, but it was just interesting storytelling that this teacher kind of hints that maybe that wasn't entirely what they were doing. Maybe there was more to it there by saying he doesn't think the research is valid. It sounded like he didn't think that the excavation practices that they were using were going to be like optimal. He said it was just like really, really, really like, like if they actually pulled it off, it would be kind of like a miracle because yeah. Yeah. He was so certain in the way that he spoke. I am convinced he was wrong. Okay. I think so, too. I think <laughs> yeah. there's definitely something there to uncover, for sure. <laughs> this is when Danvers gets a call to the station. We learn that... It gets a call to the station, it cuts. We learn that Navarro's sister, who, if you remember from episode one, she's struggling with some kind of mental health disorder. It's not super clear. We have some ideas. 
but we're back to Navarro and Rose now. And Navarro says that her sister is struggling with seeing their dead mother. And so that kind of ties into the ghosts of Ennis and this mm-hmm. mental health side of it. And yet another killer line from Rose. I love Rose so far. Um, she tells Navarro, don't confuse the spirit world with mental health issues. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, and basically tells her, you know, you should get her medicated and try to get her help. Rose counteracts that. We kind of got an idea from the first episode that she did not want to be um, medicated. And then Navarro's leaving. They're walking outside. Rose is walking her to the car. And Rose mentions the spiral on the guy's head. She just kind of casually asks Navarro, did you see it? Navarro says, I've seen it before, but it was a long time ago. And so Rose grabs a stick and draws the familiar spiral in the snow Navarro asks what she thinks it is or again Rose with another great ominous line uh, says it's old older than Ennis and then she stops and looks out into the distance and says maybe older than the ice and all of this between the scientists digging and researching for something this being older than the ice again I'm going paranormal they woke something up but it's just another like this is some great buildup. It also kind of gives you this like vibe that maybe there was something there before the ice, like something mm. ancient about this symbol that's just been around for so long. Because um, it, it, it also ties in with the other seasons as well. Like it just kind of reminds me of Carcosa, which we encounter in season one, like those little stick figures and stuff. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just that symbol in general gives me... I don't know. I think I think her line about um, don't confuse mental illness with the paranormal. I think that might also be telling us that there is paranormal going on here. It's not just somebody's crazy and they're all hallucinating ghosts. I think that could be directed straight at us at the audience telling us, yeah, there's paranormal stuff happening here. Don't think we're going to undo all of it, because that's my biggest question is how much of this is paranormal and how much of this can be explained away? Yeah. Like how much is a Scooby-Doo episode? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't honestly, I don't like it when everything is explained away and it all makes sense because there's just too much good stuff going on here. I agree. Uh, uh, You said something. I forgot it. We'll move (laughs) on. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. okay so we cut back to danvers who's now entering the police station And she is preventing Captain Ted Connolly from passing the case on the Anchorage. He wants to send it to Anchorage. They have better investigation equipment. They're just better equipped to handle the case. And there's definitely this tension between the two of them. Again, another scene that implies a history that I don't really care to know the full history, but I love that it's creating added drama to the scene. Um, But the captain assigned Danvers to Ennis 
and there's a whole bunch of passive aggressive marks here but essentially danvers pulls some regulations about preserving forensics and she gets to hold the bodies for about 48 hours before they can be moved by she mentioned something about they have to fall at a certain rate of certain temperature for x number of hours whatever before they can be handled so she gets them relocates them to the ice rink in town which i think in this scene everybody in the town was at that ice rink there were quite a few people there for this small alaskan town mm-hmm. um she does this after a brief the whole thing is done to the beach boys which is hilarious yes there's a Beach Boys Christmas song playing over them moving the dead bodies <laughs> into the ice rink. It was great. But she does this through a conversation with the uh, ice. It, she appears to be the ice rink owner, which is connected to the mining facility in town. This lady hates Danvers. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Kate. Danvers again says something about I dated her husband. So at this point, we're just like Danvers is a POS. Mm-hmm. Like she's... It's one thing to be out there and have multiple relationships. You're really bothering me when every one of them is with somebody who's married and in a committed relationship. Mm-hmm. That makes you, you know, I'm not going to go out there and give too much of my opinion on that. It definitely but... makes her her <laughs> character hard to like. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, also, when, when Kate is sitting there and she sees Danvers walking over, she, she just said something that cracks me up every time I watch that episode. She was just like, oh, God. and i loved so you like that when she was walking up i loved when kate is leaving after they've dropped the bodies and she's just cursing up a storm about danvers and she passes navarro and she's like hey navarro and then keeps walking (laughs) she's so so livid (laughs) it's just another moment of like the town likes navarro yeah they do not like danvers and it's we're not told that explicitly. We are kind of in one scene when she's like, oh, she hates you. That's it. But we're learning as we go that Danvers has a contentious relationship with just about everybody in town. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is when she and Peter, Peter is the younger police detective. They're tr- going through identifying the frozen bodies on the ice rink. And they say the line, there are five heads and nine feet, which means the rest are buried. And they make a comment about the way they're frozen. And it says it's like there was something chasing them. They're all huddled together. They're all kind of leaning, falling back, protecting themselves with their hands raised. And there's a joke made about a Yeti. Um, I love Yeti stories, so... (laughs) i wouldn't be super upset if you do it really well but there's a joke made about how it's not a yeti um they go back and forth a little bit about this is when they discovered the self-inflicted bite wounds one of the frozen bodies has his fingers in his mouth and uh, it's it's some creepy imagery Mm -hmm. uh and this is when they also discuss that the clothes were folded neatly next to them Navarro shows up with a photo of the spiral and shows it to Danvers and says, this was on Annie's body. They debate working together. Danvers is like, you just want to work on my case or you want to work with me again or whatever. And they're like, no, we basically hate each other, but it is clearly connected. And Danvers is holding her ground, tells 
Navarro to get out. She tells this is when she tells Danvers, no one likes you except poor Peter Pryor. And I that was like a gut wrenching line because you do care for Peter in this show a lot. At least I did. He's a very sympathetic character. He's very likable for sure. Yeah, he just wants to prove himself. And it kind of hurts that he's looking up to the person everybody despises. And you're like, oh, I don't, I don't see how this could end well. Um, but this is when right before the scene cuts, Peter uses the face of one of the frozen men to unlock his phone. We cut to Kavix. Navarro's there. We assume she just left the ice rink, went to Kavix. Everything's walking distance in this tiny town. Um asks her sister who's there busting tables if she want to watch his, if she wants to watch the bachelor later i loved this one line it's so small but in that moment navarro is giving her sister something to look forward to and a moment to share together and it also implies a history of a ritual between two sisters of watching the bachelor together and so there's just that one brief exchange that I loved for multiple reasons. I thought that was just a really nice touch because it wasn't, it's one of those things that it doesn't seem important on the surface. It's not a forced line. It's not a heavy handed line. It's just a very subtle, subtle line that implies their connection. Like it seemed real. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that for sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the only one. No. So then Navarro goes to talk to Ryan, who, if you remember, that's Annie's brother from the murder six years ago. During her discussion, a fight breaks out at the bar between the miners and the locals. So we're getting some tension in the town. We mentioned there is possibly building tension of they talk about supplies running low, waiting for next shipments. And I think this is another moment of we're seeing some tension building in this town. I personally liked Kavik seemed so mild mannered in the first episode and he still is, but I liked seeing him manhandle this miner and throw him out of the bar. I liked seeing it was a moment where I'm like, he is a gentle kind soul who will defend his property, defend his people. And I was like, I, I love that representation of Kavik. We cut again after that fight. We cut again to Danvers and Peter go through photos and evidence. The evidence is really pointing, as they're talking about it, the evidence is pointing to delirium from hypothermia. This was reminding me a lot of, I don't know if you guys get into this. I do. It's a lot of what people believe, main scientists believe, happened at the Dyatlov Pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They believe they went nuts from hypothermia, clawed each other, ran around naked, whatever. They believe that that's what happened. I don't know that I subscribe to it, but as they're talking about this, I'm definitely drawing those Diallo past comparisons of I'm getting that moment where like, oh, a lot of these same things um, in the show are what happened to people at the Atlaw Pass. They were much spread out. They were at a camp and that, but self-inflicted bite marks, clawing eyes out, things like that, very similar to the Atlaw Pass incident. And so I'm drawing that parallel during this scene. I feel like that's probably intentional. It, it seems a little bit close, kind of like um, 
I think that it's definitely inspired by the thing as well. And yes. you guys talked about it. I listened to episode one. You guys talked about that episode one. Uh, in the scene where Ferris Bueller is on the TV, there's a copy mm-hmm. of the thing right next to it. Oh. They're not embarrassed about the fact that they're being influenced by other things. And because of how similar the two stories are, I would be surprised if they weren't influenced by. Yeah. Yes. That's a good catch. Good catch. I didn't know. Yeah, that's really that. interesting. I didn't see that either. I actually thought the frozen body screaming at the beginning of this episode was very reminiscent of some of the stuff from the thing. Mm-hmm. So they're talking about the hypothermia and then they ask some questions about like, but why would you leave the station without clothes there? There's been a theme this episode about asking the right questions and Danvers is teaching that to Peter. And then I hear later in the episode, Navarro says that's not the right question. So it's clear that she was trained by Danvers too. We're mm-hmm. catching that. Yeah. I, I loved that scene. It was just like, like very true detective in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that kind of stuff. Yep. And then one of the questions they ask is was the spiral drawn before they ran out of the station, the spiral drawn on the guy's forehead or out on the ice and then they stop and Peter goes, no one stops to draw on their own forehead while they're freezing to death. And I was like, that's a great line. I got chills. Good stuff. <laughs> and they ask again, how scared do you have to be to run out into the ice without any shoes? I wrote that one down. I love that. Yeah. I live in northern Indiana. Once it hits like five outside, <laughs> the ground is it hurts to be on for an extended period of time. It gets so cold that you're not going to get me outside without shoes. So I would have to be very scared to run outside without shoes, especially in those temperatures. I definitely feel that in uh, Fenton, Missouri, it's been like <laughs> below zero <laughs> for a while. Yeah, and I'm in Southern California it's where it's hot outside right now. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, we're getting, I have weird weather right now. The snow um, melted couple days ago and now we're at like 50 and everything's muddy and gross um yeah (laughs) it is warmer that's the nice part but that comment about like i would have to be very terrified to go in onto the ice without shoes on um they ask why are the clothes folded did the killer fold them why would the killer fold them and danvers makes Peter says it doesn't make any sense. And Danvers goes, no, it doesn't make sense. But we're not asking the right questions yet. This is when she gets called to the station again. Uh, And there's a brief moment after she gets called where Peter and her look at the video on the phone that Peter unlocked. And it is the video of what episode one started with. The guy and, making the sandwich. Yep. And it's the guy making the sandwich. And in the background, we I actually think they almost showed it better in this video than at the beginning of the first episode. I think so, too. <laughs> he, he's like having this standing seizure again. We learned that this guy's name is Clark. He's having this standing seizure. And this is the only time it's said in this episode. But he turns and says, she's awake. And then it cuts. We don't get the reaction to what they just saw. Yeah, that irked me. I I want some kind of reaction. Give me something more. Give me something more. I also noticed at the end of that video, there's like a like a weird light type situation that happens. 
like really? on on the phone, like during the video, like it almost seems like a power supply or something went off and kind of like took out the signal. I'm not quite sure, but oh. I, I do seem to remember the lights were flickering at that station. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lights yeah. were flickering, yeah. and then it, it almost looks like like um, something exploded. I'm not quite sure. Interesting. Now I'm gonna have to check that again. We cut to Kavik, who's helping a dog that got in a fight. And Navarro shows up. I'm assuming she just stayed after that bar fight. It, this is, again, one of those moments in this show where everything happens in the dark. So I don't know if we are the morning, lunchtime, nighttime. It's all the same. It gets really confusing. And it's also a really cool setting because it puts us as viewers off balance. And I I love that about it. Um, but he's helping this dog. We hear... He says something about the water turned bad last week and it's turning black in some homes. And it's implied that that's from the mines being too close, mm-hmm. which could be a cause of tension between the locals and the miners. Part of me wonders if it is not just because of the mines, if the water turning black is something else. They mentioned it here you- in the bar fight, too. The miner says something like, My kids drink that water, too. And yeah. so that was part of the bar fight. Yeah. So there's definitely, and I, it could just be part of that tension of the existing history of the city. It could be related. I don't know yet. I'd be interested to see that. But one of the things I, it kind of rubbed me wrong. I'm a dog person. Um, but Navarro says something about the, uh, one of the days the dogs are going to eat you. Yeah. And, yeah. And that was that foreshadowing. I, I wrote it down it, as foreshadowing. I don't know if the dogs are going to eat him, but I wouldn't be surprised if something does. Yeah. Cause we've already kind of established a sympathetic relationship with him at this point. Mm-hmm. We'd like Kavik. Mm-hmm. So that line just, it stood out to me. It's kind of unprovoked and it was Definitely. interesting. Definitely. I, I like the way, like, I know you're going to get to it probably right now, but like right after that, he starts talking to Navarro and he's like, <laughs> eventually she's going to melt. Right. And then <laughs> yes, it's like I, they definitely have like a love for each other. Yes. And it's one of those things. I don't know if they've discovered it yet, if it's purely a physical relationship at this point. But I wrote that down. Like he draws the parallel about being really tough on the outside, but deep down, she just needs love and affection. And I was like, oh, that's kind of adorable. <laughs> yeah. I love his accent too. Like I, I believe him. Like I think he may be from there or something. I don't yes. know. He does. He's a really great actor. Because it sounds slightly Canadian. Yeah, Maybe. it does. <laughs> it's just a little off. Um, we cut back to Danvers. Uh, Danvers is at the butcher shop. So this next scene, we're getting Danvers and Peter talking to a couple different people about this person clark it's spliced together really well they're really short like one or two sentences a clip but it bounces back and forth so i'm just kind of gonna kind of read it chronologically instead of second by second danvers is asking people at the butcher shop about annie and the spiral sign and i just thought it was interesting that this old lady called it witchcraft like immediately i had a problem Uh, with that i had somebody else called it the devil's sign 
my entire issue, my entire issue is the literal, just the spiral itself, the iconography of the spiral. I know it's a little squished and I know it's got a little bit of jaggedness to it, but that's just a stupid spiral. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone who sees it is like witchcraft, demons of the devil, older than the world itself. And I'm like, that's a spiral. You needed to make that a little bit more unique or have somebody say it's just a spiral and then have somebody else go, oh, but it's not. Like it would be very easy to, to fix it, but it just every time it came up and somebody else referred to it as evil, I just went, No, it's a spiral. It's that's a good point, because it is just a spiral. I it's one of those things, kind of like the science teacher knowing everything. Mm-hmm, I'm like, exactly. eh, for the sake of the story, it's working for me. I you know, I even think about like if it was the symbol from Yellow Jackets, that mm-hmm. one looks more evil mm-hmm. than the spiral does. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be a straight pentagram. It, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It kind of looks like a little kid drew it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that part right there, like a little kid drew it, adds just a little bit of that creepiness to it for me. I don't think it's an overtly creepy symbol. Mm-hmm. It was when it was drawn onto the murdered girl's back oh, in yeah. season one. That was creepy. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I agree. I don't know how everybody immediately knows that it's witchcraft. I like it for the sake of the story because I like a little bit of witchcraft and paranormal stuff in my Same. story. Same. making it interesting. Same. I'm willing to go on the journey the spiral is trying to take me on. <laughs> it look different. <laughs> yes. So it cuts to Peter. He's talking to delivery driver. The delivery driver calls the scientists a bunch of weirdos, especially Clark. He singles out Clark, who would talk to himself and stare into nothing. He says there was one time he just saw Clark hanging out naked, like standing there. The delivery driver says he saw someone at the station the night he realized it was missing. And he takes this back instantly. He's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't see anybody. And then... Peter kind of pushes, you just said you did. I need to know, like, for the case. And he goes, this is Innis. Sometimes you see people. And he says, another great line of the show. Even the dead get bored. Yes, even the dead get bored. So good. He's Um, so blasé the entire time. It's great. Like, he's almost bored with seeing dead people. I love it. <laughs> it, it's a great scene. Again, that goes ties back to the conversation with Rose and Navarro, adds to the history of the town, but adds to the spook factor just a little bit. It's great. Um, he also says to Peter in that scene right afterwards, he's like, You grew up here, mm-hmm. or you grew up here, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, like yeah. you've seen him. Like everybody sees him. Which makes me wonder why we haven't seen that side of Peter yet. I'm sure we will. Uh, Especially (laughs) because it's something that happens later um, again. But the delivery driver does mention that Clark, when he was standing there naked that day, does have the spiral tattoo on his chest. Danvers is talking to a maid who is in there cleaning, cleaning a lady. And she says the scientists were all very serious, but she says that Clark would often lock himself in the room and cry and nobody could get to him. Navarro is driving. I'm not exactly, I can't remember where she's going. Um, She's driving, but she finds this crucifix on the floor of her car. And she, we get another very brief flashback as she's staring at this crucifix of what we are going to assume is Trooper Navarro and her sister. She's holding her crying sister. They look maybe 14. Uh, Navarro does. 
and her mother in this scene is crying out wailing and it looks like demon possession in the traditional horror movie mm-hmm. sense of how it's portrayed mm-hmm. it's shot kind of like something out of an ex uh, uh, a demon possession exorcism type movie as well the 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 color wash i want to say changed a little bit and it looked a little yellowed Yes. No, nope, yeah. you are 100% correct. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, I think my husband made a joke about how she was, she was distracted driving. Was it her phone? Was it Spice Girls or was it the exorcism that caused her to crash? <laughs> I, I wondered if it was Ennis because I also wondered what she hit. Yeah. It seemed kind of random. It, it looked like it was just a snow mound. Yeah, but, which yeah, I don't know. Maybe don't from a plow. Super, I'm not sure. It, uh, yeah, I don't think it's super important. I'm not sure it's going to have any play out on the story, but it just seemed one of those things that like Ennis is getting in her head. But it did make me start to wonder, like, if if the mother's issue was spiritual related or if it was mental health related. And so it just that scene kind of raises a question. She I thought it was interesting. She then throws the necklace out the window, kind of going back to that conversation she had episode one about saying God has left us or. Yeah, I think that was it. I wonder if we're going to end up seeing that cross again. Uh, I'm curious. Like she threw it out the window and it's going to show up in another episode or something. There's an intentional shot of it lying in the snow. So, uh, yeah. So she is, we find out she's driving to talk to the miner that started the fight. This is just a really brief scene. It doesn't last too long. Um, But she finds out that Clark bought a trailer from this miner's cousin. And he paid cash. He mentions $10,000 cash. And she's like, well, can I talk to your cousin? And he says he died like seven years ago or whatever. That's how long ago the trailer was purchased. Um, Morrow says flat or the miner says flat out first time in two episodes that we hear this, that he does not like Navarro. So that is the first time. It was very I, direct. He's like, I don't like you. <laughs> yeah, it, it was very uncomfortable. And she I loved her reaction to it. She just stares him down again. And she basically says, it's not that you don't like me. You didn't like Annie and you are OK with what happened to her referring to the murder. And that's about it for that scene. But I just thought that was a really strong scene. Mm-hmm. It like kind of explained a lot about the characters in the show without saying too much. If that makes sense at all. Like, like it shows like how strong she is and then like how he kind of knows his, his place with her basically. Very true. We cut to Hank Pryor. He's having his 90 day fiance conversation on his phone with his, uh, I believe he said Russian bride who's coming. That's so sad. (laughs) It just reminded me so much of my wife and I watch 90 Day Fiance, and it just reminded me so much of those relationships. And she asks, I thought this was weird, and I think it's just a setup for what's about to happen, but she asks for more pictures of him, which immediately made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Same. Uh, Okay. And then he thankfully goes and starts taking photos of old photographs, which leads him to the room that Peter took the Annie Kotak 
case files out of. And so this is when he discovers that they're missing. The ones he threw out the window. Yep. Peter tells Danvers about the spiral, says the spiral was on Clark's chest. They're walking out of some coffee shop, I believe. Tells Danvers about the spiral on Clark's chest and Clark's bizarre behavior. And the question that's asked now is, why were the scientist guys putting up with his bizarre behavior? And I thought that was a very good question. And it's also revealed at this moment that Clark had, was totally cut off from his family. He hadn't spoken to his mother in over 10 years. Uh, really quickly, I think she yeah. even says that's the right question. Okay. To kind of tie back in with what you were saying earlier, yeah. like asking the right questions. Why are they putting up with that? Peter tells Danver that a NGO non-governmental organization funds the Salal station. And the investors point to a shell corporation named NC Global Strategies, which is owned by Tuttle United. Dan versus like, that tells me nothing. And basically, it's a giant corporation that owns a whole bunch of other stuff. Peter asks what Navarro did to her. And she completely dodges answering this. She says, are you worried you're going to mess up like her? Just don't mess up. Right. And... This leads to another strong conversation point later. Danvers shows up to Peter's house and there's some tension between Peter's wife and Danvers because Danvers just sent Peter off to go do another fetch quest and his wife obviously wants him home. Danvers says she would be sick of her husband being around and just another moment where you're not a big fan of Danvers and this scene makes it worse. Danvers is there to pick up her stepdaughter but gets upset when her daughter is wearing some kind of tribal face paint. Mm. She calls the grandmother something horrible that I don't even, I don't even want to repeat it, but this is the moment that cements that Danvers is just awful. She's a very hard to like person. She may be a good detective, but finding the redeeming qualities in Danvers at this point is very hard. Yeah. It was weird that she was just so insulting. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was very petty. <laughs> I don't know. It was. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. like that either. Yeah. So you, you have something to say? You're no, doing... no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just no. they, they want us to dislike her as much as everybody in that town does. Yes. And um, oh, God, <laughs> that's a good point. They, they do. They want us to dislike her. And I don't think this is going to be one of those situations where something is going to happen and suddenly she'll be redeemed and she was wrong to be disliked all along. I think this is a genuinely dislikable, like unlikable person. I don't yeah. think that they're going to throw that at us and it's going to be, oh, she was great all along. I think she's an asshole and she's going to remain I'll, an asshole. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't want that for her character. <laughs> I was reading a little bit about Jodie Foster's performance. There was like early on when there were trailers for it, I was like, oh, it'd be super sweet if this was actually a sequel to Silence of the Lambs. And like she went up to Alaska and it's the same character just investigating. Jodie Foster, originally the character was written to be likable and on this kind of recovery arc mm -hmm. from the trauma that we're being hinted at. Mm -hmm. And Jodie Foster was like, nah, I don't want to play it like that. What if I'm just awful mm -hmm. and they kind of rewrote it to make her awful and i'm like yeah it works mm -hmm. it works very much so navarro and her sister are in a grocery store it's a very quick scene navarro makes a comment about 20 dollars for a pack of cookies this goes we talked about how in alaska they'll jack the price the prices up of random things and the sister says arctic prices and that's just another small detail i love creating this real setting but they have a sweet conversation about treatment. 
and it's just like Navarro is really pushing to help her sister, which makes me think something tragic is going to happen. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, it's almost like something tragic is going to happen to everybody in that town. <laughs> it's true. It's like a looming doom over the entire show. That is true. So we get this is the I don't care for this. Um, stepdaughter gets a text from her girlfriend, sneaks out of the house. Uh, it really doesn't do anything other than give us a quiet moment with Danvers. And I just wondered if Danvers is decorating for Christmas and she pulls up this tangled Christmas lights. And I just got this moment that I was like, is this tangled mess of Christmas lights? Cause she kind of pulls it up, looks at it and then sighs and drops it. I was like, is this like her realizing the tangled mess of her life at the moment? Because it seems that she's entwined with everybody and not in a good way. Mm. that's yeah. a good point she's going through the christmas boxes and she finds the uh, teddy bear polar bear with its missing eye mm-hmm. so i know matthew mentioned you liked this teddy, this bear did in the intro it's in the yeah. intro too and then it was also in episode one um yeah it just looked really really good it was very clean um kind of so, like everything in the yeah. show to be honest <laughs> everything looks really really good this season so did this is when we get a little flashback of danvers with a young boy so not the stepdaughter young boy they're having a really sweet it appears to be a mother-son moment just laying on the floor playing but key part right here i commented on episode one that twist and shout was obnoxiously loud mm-hmm. and in this flashback twist and shout is playing yep so danvers lied when she said she didn't like the beatles but i guess it could be she doesn't like them now she used to like them yeah. correlating it to like some type of accident maybe i i almost wonder if that that boy in that scene like went missing or something i don't know missing oh. kids is very common throughout true detective i think he's dead and i think she she, <laughs> she did caused it and I think that oh, might no. be why they don't like her. One of the reasons they don't like her. Interesting. Oh, that would, yeah. There's something about the way she responded to the DUI in episode one that makes very aggressive. Think there's something going on with a DUI, and the current working theory in my house is is that she was drunk and killed her Ooh. husband and her kid. Oh, yeah. That's that's good. I was thinking the husband was drunk mm-hmm. and caused it. That could be it too. But that is a very good, <clears throat> very good uh, observation there. Um, yeah, that may have just changed my mind on what <laughs> I think happened because that would explain her character a heck of a lot more. Yeah. Uh, people dislike her who really, if she were just sleeping with everybody's husbands, there, some people wouldn't dislike her in the way they appear to. Yes. That's not enough. There's something else has to be there that and 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 if you watch, um, she's very familiar with a lot of people. She the, the whenever she walks into the classroom and dismisses the classroom, that there's something very familiar about that. And then the response she gets is, "Oh God, this one again." Same thing later mm-hmm. on when she's with Navarro and she starts unpacking her groceries for her without being asked. Like there's something yes. like she was once part of this community and is no longer part of this community. I, I, I wrote that down, the unpacking the groceries. Mm-hmm. Yep. I made a note of that as well. It was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're then we go back to the frozen bodies 
and we're there for like half a second and Peter slapped across the face and we don't see who did it at first, but it, it doesn't take too long to realize that it was the father using some traditional emotional manipulation tactics to reprimand his son saying, you don't go into my house to steal. Even your mother didn't steal from us when she left. Uh, blood is blood. Yeah, just, like the blood is thicker than water thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's I was like, scene, this, this boy's been hit a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you care for Peter a little more, dislike his father a little more. Um, and there's still something shady going on with his father. But it is then revealed to Danver that Denver's Danvers is having an affair with uh was it Captain Connolly? Mm-hmm. Captain. With yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember if it was Captain. Um despite their animosity earlier, there we cut to them having a physical relationship and they joke about their meeting like this has to end and they joke about how long it's been and he's like 15 years and she goes no it's 19 and he's like 19 i was newly married and she goes yeah i was 19 and just another moment of she's sleeping with everybody um messing up marriages uh and episode with my mom so i got to watch that scene with my mom (laughs) that's a little (laughs) (laughs) uh and then I think he mentions that she was married at this point, too. Yeah. So this is when Conley kind of threatens her that he has to send the bodies to Anchorage and does not believe Danvers can handle it. And she leaves furiously. Danvers gets confirmation that Clark had the spiral tattoo on his chest from Peter, but she calls a tattoo artist using credit credit checks and finds the tattoo artist calls do you have a record of this? Yes. Tattoo artist mentions he cried when it was finished and that it seemed very sentimental. And she provides a photo of what inspired that tattoo. We cut, we don't see this photo. So she, this is the scene where she visits Navarro at the house, telling her that Clark, it's confirmed, Clark got the spiral. She drops the photo from Annie. So Annie also had that spiral tattooed on her back. So she confirms, hey, the cases are connected. I guess we're working together. Um, But this is a moment she's unpacking those groceries and she says something about where did you move the cans? They're not in this cabinet anymore. So again, implying that she's been there. She's Mm -hmm. cooked in that house. Assume she has unloaded groceries. It's just another subtle line that implies that history. But then there's the ever so brief comment made by Navarro and I did not catch it. I almost rewound it to catch it, but Danvers' reaction is shut up. We're just doing this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to assume that relates to the little boy. That's my thought. We then go to the stepdaughter who is leaving her girlfriends and she notices Peter is working on the thawing bodies. She stops there to scare him. They have a nice little conversation. I notice in this scene that she does not refer to Danvers as her mom, even though it's her stepmother, she refers to her as Liz, which, so there's more tension there. Peter also refers to his dad at, like by his first name as well. Interesting. I miss that. But there's they have this conversation about Hank's wife, Peter's Peter's mother left because she didn't think Hank was good enough. And then Peter says this beautiful, the emo kid in emo kid in me loved it. Um, 
he says something about that sticks with you, doesn't it? Not being good enough. I love that, that line. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it ties back to him wanting to prove himself to Danvers, that little boy looking up to her and wanting to prove that. Also, just his father relationship is kind of it's a beautiful line that makes you care for this kid so much more. Navarro then visits Kavik again. They have a fun little exchange while he's in the bathtub. Um, <laughs> through their conversation, he's making pancakes. So again, I have no idea what time of day it is, but the pancakes make me think it's morning. They have a conversation. They realize that Navarro knew a lot about Annie from the previous case, but she had no idea that Annie was dating Clark. She's sitting there and she, this is when she's talking about what's the right question. And she says, the right question is how, how could she not know Annie and Clark were having a relationship. How were they having a relationship they kept secret? And this is when everything starts to fall in place that if you are having a secret relationship, you would have it at the RV that Clark bought off the miner's cousin. The Golden Eagle. Navarro goes, finds the RV by herself, calls Annie or calls Danvers. Danvers comes out and they investigate this RV. I love there's something in it's happened in multiple things. I love creepy RV scenes. I, I love it when you find this abandoned <laughs> RV, you go in and there's like a temple in the back of it or a whole I there's something about it that works for me. I love those scenes. Um but they go into this RV and there's animal bones. Uh there's like a shrine of Annie's photos. There's a literal this like gross me out literal doll mm-hmm. of Annie laying in the bed. That's almost full size. Mm-hmm. I love that the, thing. I love that. Yeah. It's creepy. It gets under your skin. It's just, ugh. and this doll is laying under the painted spiral on the ceiling of the RV. It kind of uh, looked like a human wrapped in like butcher paper almost. Yeah. And at first so I thought it was there. a body. Oh, same, same, <laughs> same. Yep. But it's wonderfully creepy. Um, while they're there, Peter calls them back to the ice rink. And I notice in this scene, the phone rings. She's on the phone with Peter and it's not background music. There's this weird screaming going on. It, it notes it in the captions. It notes like otherworldly screaming or something yeah. like that before it cuts away. So you also watch shows with subtitles on. Absolutely. <laughs> I do it because of our dogs. They'll just randomly bark and we'll be like, what was that? And we got to have the, yeah. But uh, there's this otherworldly screaming going on that it, it's a creepy sound, but it is, I don't know how it's connected to what's happening right there. Um, but they go back to the ice rink and realize it's melted enough that there are only six bodies and the body of Clark is missing. And the episode ends with the appropriate seven devils by Florence and the machine. Mm-hmm. So I do think the song title had something to do with the seven bodies frozen in the ice. So that was it for episode two. What are, your, what are our thoughts? Uh, I, I uh, just wanted to touch on one thing that I think we didn't talk about. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the uh, when they're having the interaction about the Tuttle United, uh, the last name Tuttle was like of like uh, the the politicians and stuff from season one, oh. and it was when Russ Cole was like, "You're not understanding, Marty. It's a family thing." 
so oh, okay. yeah so the ties to season one continue yeah okay I, there, there's a lot of them I'm, it makes me really excited <laughs> like i knew that had to be important but i wouldn't have caught that connection yeah because it was like uh it was reverend tuttle in season one and then i guess uh like Billy Tuttle and Edwin Tuttle or something like oh. that. Their whole family is like politicians and then the money and stuff. And then it talks about now like Tuttle United having their fingers and everything at this point, like even cruise lines. So it shows you like how much money is actually there. And like, I don't know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be cool to see how this unfolds for yeah, sure. So. That's good. So Ivy, what were your thoughts? I think that there's probably, it feels almost like they want us to think it's all connected, but it's not like, it almost feels like Clark was trying to raise Annie from the dead. And then there were other things happening, like the thing with the poisoned water that could be, if, if that could very easily be a rich corporations are destroying the world storyline that just happens to coincide with something else. It mm -hmm. almost feels like there's multiple little things going on. Um, yeah, I have, I have a friend that thinks it's a cult. I'm not so sure about that. But I, it really does feel like Clark was was trying to, to bring old Annie back because he's so in love with her and something did not go right there. So huh. I'm really interested to see how the particular pieces of the puzzle of Annie's death, the weird paranormal stuff, and what is going on with they're poisoning the water and this bad stuff is happening and blah, blah, blah. Because I think that there's more than one thing going on here. I don't think that it's all connected necessarily, but like loosely connected. Yeah. So that adds depth to she's awake mm -hmm. then. So would you would you say it's your belief that she is awake is referring to Annie? I think Clark thinks it is. Oh, oh, okay. That's a <laughs> nice way to phrase that. <laughs> nice way to phrase that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I do. I, I think I think he thought that that's what he was doing, but I don't know that necessarily that's exactly what he did. He woke mm. something up. Mm. Yep. Yep. So I, I think I, I had not thought about the kind of trying to bring her back at side of things. Um, I definitely think these scientists woke something up. Mm -hmm. I'm leaning, I said at the end of the last episode, I'm leaning that this is going to be a paranormal case. I don't think this is going to be, um, the backwoods redneck guy from, uh, from season one. I uh, very hope that that is true. I really hope it is paranormal because it. It's interesting if they do this way. I wonder if it has something to do with them drilling in the ice and the yeah. water supply. Mm. Like maybe yeah. they found something that got into the water. I don't know. There's so many different takes on this. Yeah. 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 That's, that's why we're here to discuss those cases. Yeah. Those takes. Um, yeah. I definitely think it's going to go paranormal. I like the uh, what you mentioned, Ivy, about danvers may have caused this tragedy to her own life mm -hmm. i think that's a very interesting takeaway that i will i mean that's what i'm going to be looking for because i do think that makes a ton of sense um i'm expecting tragedy to hit both peter and i cannot remember navarro's sister but i am expecting tragedy to hit both of them and whether Part of me thinks that one of them is going to have a very real world tragedy and one of them is going to have a very paranormal tragedy. So I could see that's, that. that's where I'm leaning. Um, but I do think that they, and the whole Kavik and the dogs thing, we'll see if that's just a 
weird line meant to throw us off or will that come into play later i'm not sure but that's where I'm at right now. I cannot wait for episode three. Rewatching episode two, I was just struck by some of the subtle brilliances in this writing. Mm-hmm. For this to be first, uh, first writing credit for Issa? It's not. If you it's go not. look at her IMDb, you, you said that, and I was like, seriously? And I went to see I, if maybe she had worked on something else. She okay. wrote and directed Tigers Are Not Afraid, which was... Um, released here on shutter and Guillermo del Toro was a big, big fan of it. It is a fairy tale. Um, it's like a dark fairy tale about children and cartels. Ooh, interesting. I am a shutter subscriber. So (laughs) it is still still on shutter. I went and I double checked. It is still on shutter. Okay. Um, very short film, very much worth watching. It got a lot of buzz in the horror community whenever it came out because it was so because it is, it's a dark fairy tale and it's very, very well done. It um, is super, it's super, oh my gosh, uh, super interesting to me that this is being touted as her first writing and directing credit. Then. I, I want to say, I want to say the wonder, first one was per, per, was done in Mexico. So maybe that's what okay. they're saying. That. And I wonder if it also means for television. Yeah, also that too. That, that could be. But either way, it's, she's doing a killer job. Very it is so, so good. Very much so. So good. All right. Well, that is all I have to say about episode two. Matthew Ivy, you have anything else? I'm good. <laughs> That's okay. a wrap. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, Ivy. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome back for episode three. If it turns out to be really good, just let me know. Aye, aye. All right. Uh, this should be coming out Sunday morning to get you ready for the Sunday night episode three premiere. Mm-hmm. We will have episode three ready for you the morning of episode four. So we will see you then. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much. And now we return you to our regular scheduled program in progress. JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.